We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Black people are two times more likely to be killed by the police, even when there are no other obvious circumstances during the encounter that would make the use of deadly force reasonable. According to MappingPoliceViolence.org, when examining data around police violence and outcomes of police killings, 2022 data reports that in addition to being two times more likely to being killed for absolutely no reason, studies and data analysis demonstrate that Black people are on average at least three times more likely to be killed by police in comparison to our white counterparts. With the recent killing of Tyree Nichols and other high-profile killings by police across the nation, also have been reignited for urgent police accountability and reform. Regularly delivering his expert insight and information to help assess and solve problems relative to policing and justice reform, having appeared on many notable programs, including News One Now with Roland Martin, Nightline, C-SPAN, Oprah, MSNBC, and the CBS Morning Show. Today's guest is a community policing educator, author, humanitarian, and justice advocate, as well as a former New Jersey police sergeant of 20 years, founding Black Cops Against Police Brutality in 1991, and authoring what has been referenced as the how-to book of setting up a plan against police brutality in your community, entitled Black Cops Against Police Brutality, a Crisis Action Plan. Recognized by human rights activist, social critic, and comedian Dick Gregory, for his courage, his wisdom, and his soul. Most recently completing his doctoral degree, examining the factors relating to police officers shooting unarmed black males. Dr. DeLacy Davis has dedicated his life to advocate for those mistreated by law enforcement and to ensuring that people of color are afforded equal rights under the Constitution. Here with us to share his perspective on the killing of Tyree Nichols, to further discuss the history and evolution of policing in America, and why it is that cops are killing instead of protecting. We have retired sergeant, community policing educator, author, humanitarian and justice advocate, founder of Black Cops Against Police Brutality, Dr. DeLacy Davis. I am Maggie B. Nowen, and this is the Black Information Network Daily Podcast with your host, Ramses Jaw. Dr. Davis, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? 
It's a pleasure to meet you, brother. I'm well. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show and peace to the family. Oh, I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I can assure you the, the pleasure is mine. Um, around here, we have, as you can imagine, conversations that often uh, touch on uh, police brutality, police shootings, police misconduct. And rarely do we talk with someone who is so informed, who has the direct experience and can provide the level of insight that we believe uh, that you can. So again, the honor and the privilege is ours here uh, on the show. So let's do this. Let's get our listeners acquainted with you. What we do is we start at the beginning, um, share a bit about yourself, uh, your upbringing, and what led you to uh, your career path. So I'm going to start in reverse. My okay. career path was started. I wanted to finance my music career. Policeman <laughs> was going to be a great job. I figured I could buy a one family, a three family house. I would use one floor to pay the mortgage. I'd use another rent to put in the bank and another rent to pay for studio time. And I did exactly that. And it okay. took me all over the world. So I was 23 years old. I started the plan at about 19 and it worked out. Um, and so I'm a musician. So, of course, I think differently. Um, my upbringing, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up poor. I didn't know I was poor until I got to college at Drew University when I got called the N-word for the first time. So that I realized I was a poor in. I didn't know that. Um, mm -hmm. There were about 17, 1800 students on the campus and they, about 70 of us were black and brown. Mm -hmm. Of the 70 that were black and brown, about 40 of us were poor kids. So we were chased to the train station, leaving the campus. And Drew University is in Madison, New Jersey, which is one of the richest counties in New Jersey, Morris County. And so they were chasing us to the train station, cussing us out, throwing bottles at us. So that was my indoctrination um, at the academic level. Um, growing up in Newark, I was a, uh, a baseball player. I figured I was going to play pro ball all my life. I played baseball from nine years old all the way to college. And of course, that's where I had my dreams snuffed out at college. Um, and, and so I went to Catholic school. I went to public school. I, I My mom told me in the eighth grade, because I've always had a gift of gab, if you will. She said, listen, you are not going to go to that high school two blocks from the house because they're going to beat you down and kill you because you shut you won't shut up and you talk too much. So you better figure out how to get into a Catholic school, a private school or learn how to draw, sing or do something that will get you into one of the magnet schools. And Arts High School, which is the uh, it's actually the first performing arts high school in the United States, is in Newark, New Jersey. So six months before graduating the eighth grade, I started teaching myself how to draw. I went and searched the neighborhood to find if there was any art majors who went to Arts High living in my neighborhood, only to find out there were two living on my block. And one of the best graphic artists and illustrators who's in this country lived on my block, Howard Simpson mm -hmm. and I'm um, Leon Bias. And so they were seniors. They were juniors when I was trying to take the test and they started coaching me. And I went to the library every day for six months to study. And I, lo and behold, I was one of 100 students who got in for art that year at Arts High School. Nice. And I enjoyed art. It was a, I'm a creative, as I know. And I see the world through a very different lens. And that's kind of how I've moved. However, after my first year at Arts High, I had a B-plus average in my major, but I hated drawing every day. And I had art the first period every day, and I hated it. So I said, well, the music people travel. I want to travel. They're like, but you're not a musician. I said, well, I need to figure that out. So you know what I did? I went to the library where the lies are buried, and I mm -hmm. started studying music. I could play kungas because I'm a self-taught percussionist, which is what I do professionally as well. And I started translating playing the kungas to playing drums and reading music. 
and I was successful there. I got straight A's in music and music theory, had no formal training, but I know, and I could, I didn't have the vocabulary then, but I know now that it's in our genes. It's in our coding. You just have to activate the drum in the African gene and it will come to life. And so I've been all over the world traveling, playing music. And so what I wound up doing is using the, I use travel and my skills and the arts um, to learn, to teach, to travel and to share. And so that pretty much gets me to college where I had that um, shocking cultural experience, but it, it, it awakened me. Um, I didn't truly awaken as an African until traveling to Ghana, West Africa in 1994. I went for Panafest with a group out of Newark called Africa Newark. And let me go back. That was 94. In 93, I was fortunate enough to, um, I founded Black Cops Against Police Brutality in 1991. By 1993, I was one of um, several organizations. I was one of several organizations in the Malcolm X Commemorative Celebration Committee 114 organizations would come together every year to celebrate the life of Malcolm X. And Sister Betty Shabazz would come to town. And so this particular year, I was in my 20s and folks knew I was a police officer and I was trying to develop my consciousness. And they said, well, why don't we let that young brother be one of the four co-chairs? And, you know, the community, I was there with nationalists and Black Panthers and, and just folks mad as hell with the cops. And they didn't want me to be one of the four but Larry Ham, who's from People's Organization for Progress in Newark, said, let's give him a shot. And so they gave me a shot. Now, Larry Ham was the youngest person in the United States of America to serve on a board of education. At the age of 17, he was appointed to the Board of Education in Newark, New Jersey by then Mayor Ken Gibson. And so I had seen him at my school in my junior year. He was a speaker and he gave me his phone number, which I memorized to this day. And Larry's about 10 years older than me, but he opened the door. And that led to a lot of things. So I got to meet Sister Betty Shabazz every year, right up until the year before her death. I spent time with her. So I've spent time with Sister Betty Shabazz, Queen Mother Winnie Mandela, Dick Gregory, Al Sharpton, Minister Farrakhan, um, Ben Chavis, our village. And so um, Amiri Baraka, the late um, playwright. And so those are the folks who poured into me. Um, Dr. Adelaide Sanford. So as a young man, I've had elders in the village. So I come from an African paradigm and I raised my child and my adopted children um, that way because I recognize that's the only thing that kept me sane, it kept me balanced, but it also kept me in the midst of struggle inside of law enforcement. So now you got a taste of who I am. Well, that's uh, quite a story. And I think that it it jibes with kind of the, the path that you're on right now. Um, it's that's a very rare story i'd imagine in law enforcement someone who is uh, culturally aware and also making an effort to um bridge some of the more visible gaps at least to, uh, insofar as black folks are concerned so um those are some powerful names and associations to have uh, and in functioning in that capacity i'm sure it was difficult on both sides um so let's let's fast forward a bit um yes you know with uh well actually you know what before we fast forward let's do this let's talk about the the roots and the origins of law enforcement and how it has evolved into the institution that it is that it has become today so that we can uh accurately frame the uh, circumstances we're dealing with today so let's talk about the history of law enforcement um as, as you know it 
So law enforcement in this country um, starts out as a gang of white boys, right? Mm -hmm. Just white men as a mob running around the country, um, capturing free black people and enslaved black people, right? They're slave catchers. Um, they're posses, as we saw in the West, in the Western movies that they've romanticized for us. Um, but they're actually folks who, who appoint themselves um, the law and the order. Even in the colonies, you had what was called or considered um, the watchman, where every able-bodied um, man had to agree that they would watch the community and make sure that people were safe and they would do the call every hour. They had the light and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so it begins to evolve. And so around the 1600s, 1620s, 30s, um, you get formalized policing as we would know it um, coming in Charleston, you see it, Charleston, South Carolina, one of the Carolinas. Um, and you also begin to see it in Boston. And so now we're, we're formalizing the police department. And now they are formally slave catchers in the South and union busters in the North. And you see that even where they're grabbing free, um, so-called free black people, um, men and women, they're dragging them back into the South and putting them into enslavement. We saw the the um, movie 12 Years, 12 Years a Slave. Slave yeah. That's an example of it. Um, and, and, and so, but what happens in 1829, the Metropolitan Police Department is formalized in London, England by Sir Robert Peel, which is why the cops were referred to as Bobbies. And he had nine Peelian principles. And we began to see some of that infused into the police departments here in the United States. But, but by this time, again, they had already been organized before Peel had come along and Peel had cut his teeth relative to the Metropolitan Police um, by what they were doing with the Irish and what the, what the United Kingdom was doing in Ireland to the Irish people. And so all of that comes along and now we see formalized police in the United States. Uh, they're beginning to organize other departments, other places are organizing, and you have what we have as the, the patrol approach to things. They become specialized as they move through the progressions, but you've got patrol, uniform patrol, people walking the beat, the cop walking the beat, and then we see, I think we see the race, race wars in this country around the 1920s. You see huge uproars in this country in terms of um racial violence. And, and of course, we we, we cannot forget that we're also dealing with now um, not so much the posse, but we're dealing with a posse or gang mentality because now we got the Ku Klux Klan riding, right? So we got the Knight Riders in the South. They're riding. So you got a civil rights movement, but you got a Klan movement that is also the police. And I want to be clear about that, right? Yeah. You've got folks in sheets and hoods, but they're also police officers and judges and the bankers and the folks in the community. And, and I want to be very clear that that mindset has not changed very much, at least not in my experience and not in my communicating with people around this country and around the world. Because when I talk to some of my relatives in the South, they still, without saying it, speak as though they understand their place. My grandmother was born 1901, died 1982, the youngest of 10 children, and all of her aunts and uncles were enslaved. I am the fifth generation of my family, Professor Gable Day, born 1818, died 1895. And so if, for him to be called professor in the 1800s when being black and literate was a crime, clearly he was educated. And so I recognize the, the lineage of my family and the responsibility that I have to that lineage. And so when I get to joining a police force, I joined for the only reasons I told you, to finance a music career. 
But within five years, I fall in love with black and brown people and move and moving in a direction of protecting and serving the community. You are absolutely correct. It was incongruent with everything that I was expected to do when I joined the force. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com B-I-N today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot B-I-N. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. We are here today with retired sergeant, community policing educator, author, humanitarian and justice advocate, founder of Black Cops Against Police Brutality, Dr. DeLacy Davis, discussing the killing of Tyree Nichols by the Memphis PD, the history and evolution of policing in America, and why it is that cops are killing instead of protecting. So so let's go with that. Um, there's a, a lot of us, myself included, we can see. Uh, well, let me make sure I say this right. I do have some friends who are police officers. I'm not so close-minded as to think that police officers are not human beings underneath their uniforms. But um, being honest with myself and my experience, um, a lot of us know 
the uh i guess the experience of witnessing or being victim of police violence police injustice this sort of thing right so we we're very familiar with this side of the equation but we are less familiar with what it's like to be a police officer much less a black police officer and this is something that perhaps you can give us insight into so talk us through what that's like what reconciling things mentally what it's like to be on the streets um in a in a black body enforcing the laws uh and often i'm sure poor and uh, minority communities um what has your experience been like uh, having to walk that path I, I think to give context to it, we must understand that black people are not a monolith, mm-hmm. right? So we go from Clarence Thomas to Minister Farrakhan. And Absolutely. so therefore we have all in between. And so as a black police officer, there are several experiences and I can simply share those that I'm familiar with, Please. but we have those that are like mine. I, I did a t-shirt when you had a graphic artist do a t-shirt for me that I called it ghetto soldier 145. And so half of it had dreadlocks and saggy pants and Timberland boots and a t-shirt and something else, maybe some music in the background. And the other half had the police uniform because it's this split. Um, Dubois calls it um, in 1903, he calls it the double consciousness, the, 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 the two-ness, the one in which you as a black man are being forced to see your black self through white eyes mm-hmm. and walking with that and what that does to you and to your spirit. Um, Kochul in 2020 refers to it when she studies um, the police officers in Ferguson, Missouri, black police officers, they call it double marginality, where you now have these built intentions between your relationship or your representation in a racial group and your representation in an employment group and how they're competing with each other. Sure. Both of those have been true for me in my journey. Okay. And I can tell you that I joined the force in 1986 by 1991, pre-Rodney King, I sat with my family and said, I'm going to start an organization and it could get me killed because the cops I work with, even though I work in the blackest police department in the state of New Jersey, in the blackest city in the state of New Jersey, these Negroes are going to be my first people that I'm going to have to fight with. Yeah. And I, I'm not asking you to die with me. I'm asking you to support my decision to put myself in the firing line. And my mother, and I'm a mama's boy who was a man, said, I'll stand with you. And every protest I've ever done, my mother stood with me. Mm. In 1997, when Sharpton and Martin III called the march on, on Washington around boycotting police practices, I brought busloads down and I was there. And so was my mother and my family. In 95, when minister called for the uh, Million Man March on October 16th, 1995, I brought six busloads down and I was one of the delegate, a part of the delegation with Larry Ham again. We brought up something like 150 buses from Newark, from New Jersey and the Newark area. And so <clears throat> the experience has been, and for me, it's been grounding because all of those things I've talked about exposed me to Dr. Malana Karanga, where he would come and do the Kwanzaa in Newark every year. But because I had been to Ghana with um, Donald Tucker at the time, who was an assemblyman, and I was one of the younger people that they had taken to Ghana, I had an opportunity to meet with Dr. Karanga and get permission to do a pre-Kwanzaa celebration. Because I thought as a Black police officer, I needed something to ground me to the Black community. Now, I still lived in Newark. I still live in Newark by choice. They sell drugs on every corner except for the four where I own a home and the four where my parents' home is. Because when I walk down the street, I'm speaking to the brother or sister who's slinging. 
I'm asking them to do a few things. Give me the same respect you want me to give you. Don't sell in front of me. Don't don't go hand in hand with, in front of me. And I won't let cops abuse, misuse, or put drugs on you in front of me. That's a fair exchange. And so we've been able to do that some 15, 20 years now. But Dr. Karenga gave me permission to do the Kwanzaa. And so every year I did a pre-Kwanzaa celebration for 12 or 13 years. And what I said to my colleagues is that you have got to identify with your blackness first. And if you're unwilling to, you're going to be treated like everyone else because it is the, the officer overseer mentality. It is a slave mentality. And one of the things I've often said is I have to fight the slave in me every day when I put that uniform on. And that's just the truth of the matter, because the easier path is to go along to get along. You know, the um, the speaker Thomas Todd in the 90s used to say that when they want one, they send one to get one. And then there's your brother or sister in the corner saying, I'll get them for you, boss. And so you have to fight that urge, because what happens um, often I would associate a black police officer with a drug dealer in the black community. They're both trying to get theirs. Right. I one of the things that I had to do and do with my colleagues was to make sure that I did not get addicted to the overtime money, right? And so the, these are the challenges that as a black police officer, not necessarily me, but as a black police officer, the struggle that goes on. So here I am, the only requirement to take this job is that I'm a citizen, I'm at least 18 years of age, um, I got a high school diploma or a GED, and you're gonna give me the most money I ever had in my entire life. 80,000, 90,000, $100,000, and you want me to speak up when I see something going wrong. No, I'm going to see no evil, hear no evil, and speak no evil. Because in my heart of hearts, I know that I've gotten an inferior education. In my heart of hearts, I know that what I might be watching is wrong, but I don't want to lose the opportunity to be different from them. Wow. Because the othering goes on inside the force. Now, those officers who speak up, and I can name some across this entire country, those who came before me, those who are stronger than me, and, and in brothers and sisters. Right. The National Black Police Association was founded in 1972. I was a baby at that point, but it was founded by black men and women who understood then what we're talking about now. And some of them are still living and I'm in touch with many of them. I recognize that we had to find something to anchor us in our community. And so for me, it was the Kwanzaa celebration, but it was also fighting what we call CNS, confused Negro syndrome, black people in positions of authority, more concerned with doing the white thing than doing the right thing. And mm -hmm. in that instance, the white thing was going along to get along. In 1998, I believe, we shut down the New Jersey Turnpike after they shot the three brothers from New York in the van, the state troopers in New Jersey. So it was a officer, a white officer, who gave me the manual that they were using to train state troopers to say, look for the signs of Jamaica, look for the symbols on the cars of the Jamaican flag. This is where you'll find the people transporting drugs up and down the 95 corridor. So... The, the, the struggle for a black officer is like I got I've been assaulted twice, ragtop, cut off my car and my car damaged at the police lot. I had an officer grab me by the neck one day at a black officer's meeting, caught, got me from behind, snatched me up off my feet and says, if this was 20 years ago, we would have killed you by now because you're a traitor to the profession. Wow. So I understand what my colleagues are going through. And those who think the way I do, um, on the West Coast, we got um, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, retired LAPD. She's all over the media. Um, conscious thinker. Reddick Hudson in, in um, uh, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, who founded the National Coalition of Law Enforcement Officers for Justice, Reform, and Accountability. We're founding members since 2015, but he identified 25 officers across the country who've all done this kind of work that I'm doing. 
So we're the forerunner in that we were able to get a national and international platform, but Black people have come long before me who fought for this kind of change and their voices have simply been muted, especially Black women. I have always maintained that the revolution, as Malcolm would say, would not, I mean, as Gil Scott Heron said, would not be televised, but it will be Black women leading it. Because what I found is that the Black women, not that they, we don't have abuse of Black women because we do, but we know from research and from my experience is that women shoot less, they're less brutal. And so then I said, then why don't we bring in more women on the force? Why would we have fewer women? It's not more women. I also recognize um, that our Black women can lead the charge and can find the testicular fortitude that my brothers do not have oui. to stand up and call a thing a thing. Talk to them. Yes, sir. Wow. Okay. I, I, I guns blazing. I, I, I get, well, I get wound I, I up, I brother. <laughs> well, well said, well said, sir. So, you know, um, you talking about, um, you know, having this organization and kind of being affiliated with these many other people who have their various organizations around the country. Um, I'm sure that a lot of data comes your way. A lot of things that you have to make sense of, make heads or tails of. Um, so talk to us about some of the studies you've done or encountered and what you've learned about the impact that a police officer's race or years of service or place of residence has on their uh, decision making when it comes to how they handle different suspects. So those variables that you just talked about are actually the variables in my research study and my okay. dissertation, police use of force, examining factors relating to police shooting unarmed black males. And what I did was I took a firearm simulator that police officers train on and I identified four scenarios out of about 900 that I had to go through. And I use a North Jersey police department, uh, which I can't name, and about 36 police officers. I'm all black, white, Asian, one identified as black, white, whatever that means, um, male and female. The youngest was about uh, 20 something, the oldest about 60 something, and most of them uniform patrol. Now, what I was looking for, one scenario was a that I had was a domestic dispute between a white male, white female. She had a baby in her arms and they were fighting over the baby and she pulled a gun, opened fire on him. The second scenario was a white male stealing a bike when the officer, it would bike cutters, a wire cutter. Then when he was trying to cut the chain, the officers came and pulled out on him and he pulled a gun out of his back pocket to fire at the officers. The third scenario was um, a older black man driving a car, but he had two young black men, one in the front seat, passenger seat, one in the back. And as the, they were pulled over, the um, driver got out of the car, but the passenger in the front seat pulled the gun and opened fire on the officers. And the fourth scenario was Trayvon Martin. It was a scenario where it was a black male with a hoodie on looking into the windows of a suburban home. What I expected, and that was my null hypothesis, my expectation is that people would shoot that young man because he advanced on the officers. Mm -hmm. But of the 36 police officers, only one shot him. So it actually did not support my hypothesis. And my hypothesis is that the officer's race, age, years of service, and place of residence um, impacts their decision to shoot or not shoot in that instance. And so although it did not support it, there's certainly research out there by others that have supported it. Um, so the earlier research used um, computer screens to shoot, not shoot. And so of course the criticism is that that's not a realistic approach to studying police officers shooting or not shooting because they use a gun, right? Where in my case, we used real guns that were modified with laser and OC spray modified with laser. There's also studies out there that came um, just before my studies that suggest um, I think Friedel and Lois James and others 
they suggest that there's what's called undervigilance, that when a white officer encounters a black suspect, that because they're concerned about the political fallout, they actually hesitate and don't shoot as frequently because they're concerned about what might happen. I struggle with that analysis, but that's some of the research. And then there's research all in between that's, and it's mixed research that says, yes, um, a geographic area does have an impact on an officer's decision. And so one of the ways, and when I first introduced it to my um, dissertation committee, my chair, who was an um, older Caucasian female nun, said, um, well, I don't see where, where that's relevant. I says, well, I can understand you've been in a convent. That makes sense that you might not see it as relevant, but I live in a hood and that makes sense to me that it is relevant. So she said, well, you're going to have to convince me. And so I did. And what I said to her is that I would like you for the next two or three weeks to go to any street in your community that's Martin Luther King Boulevard, street, neighborhood, or drive. And then I want you to tell me what the, what the street looks like geographically relative to all the other streets in the neighborhood. And very often and invariably, Martin Luther King Street, wherever you are in America, is one of the worst streets that we have in our community. And it seems interesting. And so there's research out there that suggests that the geometric frameworks and the, the symmetry and the architecture impacts how people see the community. Yeah. And so if I come to a community where I've never been amongst black, brown, poor, marginalized people, I begin to see you through the lens that Dubois talked about of double consciousness. If I look like you or through the other lenses that the media shapes and frames in that we have that criminals are black and brown. The overuse of welfare is black and brown. Um, the people I should fear are black and brown. But Ivan Bolsky, Michael Milken. They come in and they steal the banks with all the junk bonds and take everything out the community and nobody recognizes them because they got suits and ties and a briefcase. So the reality is that, um, and this is why we hear people talk about black on black crime as though the research doesn't support the hypothesis or the notion in the fact that white people kill white people, Asians kill Asians, Hispanics kill Hispanics and blacks kill blacks, but we're the only ones to get a category all to ourselves. Yeah. Why? Because it feeds a larger narrative. And that is, as I've heard said often, what do you do with your former slaves and their children when you no longer have any use for them? What do you do? Well, we, we'll let them play two black quarterbacks for the first time in the history of the NFL. We'll let them play in the, in, in the championship game this coming weekend. Right. And we're going to make hay about it. The reality is let's not make hay about having two black quarterbacks. And I like Mahomes and I like Jalen Hurts. The reality is let's talk about why we haven't had one before now, <laughs> because the greatest quarterbacks have been black. So what what are the barriers to their getting in? What are the systems that are in place that Dr. Francis Cress Wellesley talked about in the keys to the colors, the ISIS papers, right? She says there's non-people area activities that are governed by racism and white supremacy. And we need to either get inside those institutions and reform them or we need to tear them down and rebuild them so that they're fair and just for everyone in their economics, entertainment, education, labor, law, politics, sex, war, and religion. And so just pick any one of those institutions and all of them oppress us. It is not accidental that people come here with nothing in their pockets but lint and a dollar bill, a dollar and a dream, and they make themselves millionaires. And they say, well, what's wrong with this lazy Negro who's been here forever? 
And it's nothing wrong with the Negro. What the problem is that all your institutions are designed to hold down a Negro. And then when some of these super Negroes become super Negroes, they forgot that they were Negroes. Right. And so they look back on us and say, what's wrong with you? Pull yourself up by the bootstrap. But I remind people all the time that you cannot come here blacker than a thousand beautiful midnights and end up with a child like me, light, bright, damn near white, unless somebody's putting cream in the coffee and loving it. And it's not just Mr. McDonald. This concludes part one of our two-part conversation with retired sergeant, community policing educator, author, humanitarian and justice advocate, founder of Black Cops Against Police Brutality, Dr. DeLacy Davis. Check in with us tomorrow for part two with your host, Ramses Ja, right here on the Black Information Network daily podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.